And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 36 and 37. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would grant us the gift of greater epiphany, greater manifestation of your truth, of who you are and what you have done for us through your word, and that you would bless my preaching um, to be useful to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In his baptism, as we uh, heard last week, Jesus is revealed to be the Messiah and the Messiah as well as the Son of God himself. And this week we also hear him proclaimed as Messiah, but under a different role, a different um, angle of that identity as he revealed it, which is Lamb of God. Sacrificial Lamb sent from God. So I want to comment on just three features in the Gospel that we just heard read. The first is... um, Really just the simple fact that John points to Christ and not himself. And we actually do need John the Baptist to point to Christ, right? He is sort of the last link in the chain of the unfolding of the Old Covenant and the prophecies. And then linking us directly. This is not just some out of the blue Messiah. This is the Messiah of Israel. And I think by uh, analogy, in our own Christian lives... All of us needed uh, John the Baptist, some human, to point us to Christ, whether it was our parents when we were children, whether it's a pastor, um, an author that you love. God, in his providence, has orchestrated his epiphanies to come sort of with an initial human prompt, like a John the Baptist. But in the same way that John the Baptist most happily takes his disciples and sends them to Jesus... As we see later on in John's Gospel, he famously says, um, he must become greater, I must become lesser. That that's the right carriage of all Christian teachers. And I think one of the temptations we can fall into as Christians with any Christian teacher, a pastor, an author, or whatever, is to become fixated on the means when that means is saying, no, look look at Christ. And so we see sort of in this continued, and I didn't realize until this year just how much of the gospel account is devoted to sort of narrating this handoff, as it were, from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. The encouragement is to not esteem any human teacher too much, to not fail by stopping at them rather than the Messiah they are pointing to. The second thing that um, is a detail that I also had not noticed until this very week which is that um, Jesus invites his disciples to hang out with him for a while before he sends them on any active mission. And this is a fact that we actually only really piece together with John's gospel. If we read Matthew's gospel, and this is actually our gospel lesson for next Sunday, it seems like Jesus just meets this fisherman and says, hey, follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But that's up in Galilee. But what we hear in this gospel today in John is down in the... Jordan River, 80 miles away from Galilee, where John is baptizing, Jesus has already met Andrew and Peter and John and Philip and Nathaniel. I didn't realize that at least five of his disciples, um, Jesus invites them to join him on the journey back to their home region. 
of Galilee. So that means they have a decent amount of time just hanging out with him. And that's what we see in that delightful, almost like domestic exchange of Jesus saying to um, Andrew, uh, and Andrew and the other disciple, what are you seeking? Uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? I kind of see them kind of fumbling the way the disciples fumble at the transfiguration, like, oh, I wasn't ready for that question. But in saying rabbi, they reveal their heart. They want instruction. You, you call someone teacher if you want them to teach you. And I love that, what that shows about just the, the beginnings of faith. Lord, we recognize that we have something to learn from you. That's how Christian faith begins, right? In many cases. And um, they're invited just to be with Jesus, just to watch his way of life. Come and see. In fact, the language of watching, maybe your ear caught it, courses throughout this passage. Right? John looked and he saw Jesus and he says, behold, right? This sort of, uh, it's the vocabulary of optics, behold. And then come, where are you staying? Come and you will see. And then just after this gospel, we see that Philip invites Nathaniel with those same words, come and see, observe, watch this person, see what he's like. Learn from him, as Jesus would say later. His teaching, the way he carries himself, his compassion, and then his miracles, how he is fulfilling the Old Testament. It's language of seeing. And one of the things that um, I feel like maybe I slightly missed the mark in some of my own early discipleship is the way, that, the way in which we've memorized that famous verse in Hebrews, if we walk by faith. No, that's not from Hebrews. Somewhere in the Bible it says we walk by faith, not by sight. You know where the reference is? <laughs> okay. Somewhere it says we walk by faith and not by sight. Um, uh, if Hebrews can quote scripture without citing the source, um, pastors can too. Um, so, um, we walk by faith and not by sight. But the thing is, is faith is described so often as a kind of sight. And so really what we're saying there is we walk by spiritual vision, not by earthly vision. That's the teaching there, right? We don't see Jesus with our eyes in our head. Of course not. Um, but it strikes me that in Hebrews, it says, um, we see Jesus. And that's written 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Right? And yet in the present tense, not some future tense, or present, we see Jesus. Not by the eyes of the head, but as Paul would say in Ephesians, the eyes of the heart. And so I think kind of we shouldn't shy away from the sort of optical framing of our pursuit of God. We are looking to see him to see him in heaven right now. So I invite you, um, even now, to sort of picture with the eyes of your heart. And one of the things I think also where we sometimes put things in the wrong box is what we think of as the category of imagination. A portion of that is just human fancy, right? But a portion of the, what we think of as imagination is actually a faculty of faith, that when we can see with our mind's eye something that's not immediately before our senses, we're actually reaching out with our soul towards that thing in a really real way, especially when we are talking of the invisible God. And so I invite you to, with the eyes of your heart, try and see, even right now, Jesus on his throne in heaven. Right? We can't see him with our eyes, but with our heart, with the gift of the Holy Spirit and the grace he gives, over the course of a lifetime, we'll be able to see him, I think, more and more clearly, even as I hope you can see him even a bit right now. And I invite you to see him, um, the Lord in his glory as he is now resurrected and ascended, 
like all glorious things, it's like a bit too bright to look at all at once. And so we come in at sort of different refractive angles. And this is what the work of the scriptures is doing, is pointing out all the different angles of the glory of Christ, of God's work in Christ. And so look at, I invite you to look at the angle of Christ as the Passover lamb. That's what John is calling him, right? Behold the lamb of God. The lamb is the Passover lamb. It was an optional part of all of the Old Testament sacrifices, but it was the exclusive part of that Passover sacrifice. And the parallels, I'm sure you've heard taught on before, but they're always um, sweet to reconnect our memory to, that just as um, the Passover lamb is slaughtered, Christ is slaughtered on the cross. Just as in Moses' time, safety from judgment and death was found if the blood of that lamb was, on, was marking your house. So you are all here. Come by faith into this house that is marked by the blood of the true lamb. We only, a few months ago, restored the baptismal font where it should be, which is the entrance of a church. Um, and that's always reminding us that we enter the church through baptism, which we know is the union with Christ in his death. So we come here, we are, mar- we are in the house that's marked by his blood. But you don't just slaughter the lamb and put it, you don't just slaughter the lamb. You don't just mark your house with the blood of that lamb. Also eat that lamb. And at, at his first institution, when God told Moses to have the people do this, he also said, and do this every year, that each year you eat of that lamb meat, you are reconnecting with the initial saving sacrifice of that Passover lamb that God used. So there was this connection, and even more so in the New Covenant, by the power of the Spirit. Each time we celebrate Holy Communion, just like how Passover, year after year, each one anchored back to that one Passover. Right? The Jews celebrate the Passover every year, but really it's commemor- commemorative of the one Passover. Same in a very similar manner, perhaps even a, certainly actually a much more profound manner. Each time we celebrate communion, we are anchoring back to the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You see, do you see the mirror imagery there? And that's why I love in the Eucharistic prayer that I have the great privilege of getting to pray each Sunday. There's that emphatic language of, um, I don't want to mess it up, so I'm going to read it directly. Here you go. <laughs> um, he, Christ, made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient. The, the, our Reforming Fathers wanted to make sure we missed no aspect of the theology of the cross, right? Full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, means offering, and satisfaction of the justice of God. Satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. But that emphasis that once offered, right? there was a singular Passover, and then all of the festal commemorative Passovers By analogy, there was the single death of Christ on Golgotha, and yet in this meal, we connect in a most mysterious and yet most real way to that first Passover. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the words we say many Sundays here. And that, blessed are those who are invited, that's you. You're here because you're invited and are invited to feast on his divine life. Those of you who have been keeping up with the daily office readings, we have just been reading in John 6, right? And those words, I guess, like every year, sounded with greater and greater depth. 
when you eat my flesh, you have my life in you. He says it in the negative. If unless you eat my flesh, you have no life in you. Which means if we eat his flesh, we have his life in us. In a spiritually and physically. That this body will be raised from the dead because he was raised from the dead. And I love, um, just to conclude, and I realize I'm all over the map here with excitement about this passage. Um, but in the college we just prayed, the, the fruit, the thing that God is guiding us to is that Christ's life hidden in us under the form of bread and wine by the power of the Spirit actually then is made manifest in us, right? That we would shine forth the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. Amen.